Welcome to Ability Stories Podcast, where we discuss the successes, challenges, and stories of people with disabilities. I'm your host, Tara Briggs. To contact me, please send an email to abilitystories at gmail.com. Welcome to Ability Stories. My name is Tara Briggs, and my guest today is Susan Reimers. Susan is blind. You have retinitis pigmentosa. And where do you work? I'm currently working at Utah Dispute Resolution um, in kind of the mediation field here in the state. And she's working on getting, passing the bar, finished law school, and you're also transgender. So um, for today, I thought it'd be really interesting to talk about what it's like to be blind and transgender and to be a part of two minorities like that. So we'll have to Sounds have you good. come on and talk about your job too one of these days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but, so uh, the way I start with every, you know, with people on, um, with guests on the show is tell me about how, you know, tell me about losing your sight and how, what that was like as a kid and your family and. Okay. How that all kind of factored together. Well, um, when I was when I was very young, four or five, um, my family noticed that I was kind of just bumping into furniture and and walls and stuff when I would enter a room uh, when it was dark. And so they took me in to see the eye doctor, and um, they diagnosed me with uh, with retinitis pigmentosa, and it's an X-linked variety. So um, um, generally, not always, but generally, boys develop the the eye condition and girls carry it. Um, so it's a recessive uh, gene. Uh, so I I went in to get diagnosed, and you know that that's that that explained why I was bumping into furniture and that sort of thing because with with my form of RP, you lose your peripheral vision first, um, and that's where your your um, rods are. And so you lose you you lose night vision very quickly, very early in life, and then uh, slowly throughout life um, you lose more and more peripheral vision until your central vision is is gone. Um, so so I was diagnosed at six, and um, you know from from then on I just I from then until until later in life when I when I kind of hooked up with the blind community. Um, I really didn't know how to deal with it. Um, I, I could drive, I could do a lot of things, but I had to make sure that I didn't drive after dark. Um, I could read print and, um, I was, I was a cartoonist. And so I was, um, you know, very dependent on my eyes for, for that kind of work. And so, um, and so I kind of tended to, you know, ignore, ignore the future or dread about it and 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 you know just kind of look at the future as if it was this big you know black cloud of doom that was just hanging on my horizon um so what do you um what do you wish you'd had access to looking back um i wish that i had had access to um to to a blind community to people that knew um, you know, what my life was going to be like and, and look like as an adult who knew the kind of, uh, 
who had a who had an understanding of the kind of skills that I would need um, as I moved forward in life. Um, someone to challenge my notion that that uh, life was going to be terrible in the future once I once I became blind, um, because that hasn't been true at all. And I, uh, you know, that's I find I find that really to be a, to be a sad aspect of my childhood that there wasn't someone there to provide a positive role model. Was it traumatic, like for your parents and stuff? It it was, you know, they, you know, and and that that was that was part of what what made it hard for me personally too is that my parents, um, my parents didn't know how to deal with it and tended to to treat it as if it was a tragedy um, mm-hmm. rather than just a thing, you know, just something that that I would have to deal with. I I had a. The one saving grace in my childhood, though, is that um, my great grandfather Samuel um, had the same eye condition and, and uh, you know, became blind from from retinitis. And no one knew what it was until I was diagnosed, and then things sort of fell into place. But um, my grandmother had lots of great stories about about him and how much he achieved in his life, even though he was blind. Um, he was a he was a, an immigrant from Russia. Um, he came to the United States. He's, he started a farm. He had, he had several children and, and did really well in his farm through the great depression. And then after that, um, you know, operated a boarding house in, in Bismarck, North Dakota. And he, and he was blind and he dealt with and, and, and financially successful, you know? Mm. And so, um, so I always had him, I never met him personally, but I always had him as, you know, this like kind of legendary family role model that I could fall back on. But he was literally the only blind person that I had heard much about um, as a child. Yeah. And I, I think, I think there's a difference between knowing of somebody who has been successful versus actually having a conversation with somebody who's been successful. Yeah. That meeting meeting an actual person seeing how they actually deal with their issues and and uh you know having that role model i think is is much different than just hearing some anecdotal stories about about someone so tell me about um like being transgender and what that was like what that was like growing up um in a lot of ways that was a lot more to deal with than my blindness um you know i was you know, I, again, diagnosed with, with RP at a young age, mm. and it didn't really affect my life all that much other than, other than you know, in, in dimly lit situations. But being transgender, on the other hand, was, um, was, was a, a holistic problem. You know, it, it affected every aspect of my life, like every, every social interaction with, with other people, every friendship, um, you know, every... Every minute of every day, it was a problem for me, and so it was. It was a lot more to deal with, and you know, as I moved through my childhood, um, it was easier when I was a child because it wasn't the the issue wasn't brought into sharp focus. I, you know, I, I felt like I was wearing the wrong clothes and had the wrong friends and and being referred to with the wrong pronouns and that sort of thing, but. Then as, as puberty kind of set in, um, then it became very distressing, distressing because I started to develop into the 
wrong kind of person. And um, so that was that was a really hard time. It really overwhelmed um, any kind of issues I, I had with blindness. Because I've thought about that. I mean, I, I'm cisgender. And as a kid, I was like the girly girl that liked glittery and sparkles and fluffy dresses. And, you know, going to prom in high yeah. school, I wanted to be in like the big puffy dress. And if I had been in a situation like where I wanted those things, but I couldn't have them, you know, because society said you weren't supposed to have them and you were a guy, yeah. your mental health, I mean, my t- I mean, tell me if I'm right, but it seems like your mental health would be like, I don't know, you, yeah, oh I was, my gosh, it'd be really hard. Cause... I was very depressed as a, as a child. And um, so, yeah, you're right. I, I was very, very depressed as a child. You don't see many children walking around with their head down and, you know, talking in a monotone voice and just kind of kind of just sullen and depressed like I was. And that was that was not due to any kind of blindness issues. That was due to my issues be, with being transgender. Um, you know, and it was also something unlike blindness that I couldn't talk about with my family because, um, you know, I was from a very conservative religious family. Um, they, they've changed over the years and, and they're very supportive of me now. But um, back then, I don't, you know, I couldn't really depend on them to be supportive of, of those kinds of feelings. And so and so it's something I kept entirely to myself Um never told anyone and you know just just had to wrestle with that throughout my childhood and my adolescence and young adulthood i don't i don't think i told anyone until i was about 20 26 or so so did you know you were transgender because that's that's one thing you know just a little bit of like research and stuff i've done for the podcast is um sometimes people don't know what's going on you know sometimes they think they might be gay or they're not quite sure but they feel like somehow they don't fit how did you well um I did know I I I knew from a very young age um you know I I was at you know at age seven or eight or I was I was praying for God to change me and you know Mm. I was um you know my my most of my friends were were primarily female and I I had very feminine interests and um you know it's hard to say exactly what makes someone someone female or feminine or what makes them male or masculine but um I just seemed to whatever whatever my essence was whatever um whatever that is it just seemed to align with uh with other girls and and with women like my goals and aspirations my my interests my communication style my scores on standardized tests like you know even even the age at, at which I started puberty like which was like about 2 years before the other before the other boys in my class everything just seemed to be very feminine except except the obvious thing you know? right and and so um and so it it was it was hard to to put a lid on all of that and just try to be just try to be a boy or be male and like meet those expectations um it was it was a huge challenge so um t- 
tell me about deciding to come out about it. Because you, I mean, you were, were you married at this point or what? How did that? Yeah, well, I, there's a couple times coming out. Like, so, so, um, so, so initially, you know, I, I found out I was transgender. I was transgender first. And then I found out that there were other people like me in, in my, in my mid teens Mm -hmm. and that there was like a way to, you know, there was a way to deal with it. And so, um, and so from then I was kind of just secretly excited about it, you know, like that there's something I can do. I used to think like, you know, once I, once I hit 18, I'm going to go somewhere and, and figure out how to transition and, and do all this stuff. But then, you know, I, I went back and forth on it because I, I, I was raised with the same conservative sort of, um, you know, like ideals and stuff as, as the rest of my family. So, you know, I thought, at times I thought, you know, this is just wrong. And so, um, and so I kind of wrestled back and forth with it. Like one day I, I, I was excited to go transition. The next day I would be, um, you know, thinking that I should just settle down and, and just live out my life as a man and, and try to be, try to, try to make the best of life. And so, um, you know, I, 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 um, I met, I met my first wife, uh, in, in my, at about 20 or so and, um, kind of wrestled with telling her, I didn't feel good about marrying her unless she knew. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I came out to her before we got married and, you know, told her that, you know, this is something I'm, I'm wrestling with and, and I just want you to be aware of it. I'm, I'm never going to transition, but, but I just want you to know this thing about me because we can't really have a, a, re- a true relationship if you don't know this about me. And, and, uh, you know, I did, I, I married her and we were married for several, several years. And, you know, I, I, I didn't pursue transition at all with her and uh, while I was with her, but, but she really saw that, you know, I was hurting because of it. Mm. And so, um, you know, I think that that made that kind of informed her decision to eventually leave the marriage. And, um, and after she had left, I, I resolved to, um, I was about 28 by this time. I resolved to, to do something about this. And so I went to a doctor and I started talking about hormones and transitioning and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then I kind of had this family crisis where a lot of my family members lost their jobs and, and wanted to, um, and needed some support from me. I was, I was a pretty stable, well-paid animator at the time and I had a house and stuff. So my mom moved into my house, my, my sister moved into my house and her family. And I kind of put the brakes on transition. I met my second wife during this time and, um, did another one of those flip flops where I said, you know, I just need to just, I just need to be happy with what I have, Mm. what I am. So I, I married her, but how come? Because of, um, because I didn't want to, uh, put my family through the, the transition, um, or, or through the embarrassment of having a transgender relative or, or son or brother. I didn't want to, um, be seen as, be seen as a, a laughing stock. You know, I didn't want to be, 
uh, ridiculed out in public. I didn't want to deal with the challenges of being trans, which, you know, there's challenges with housing and employment and discrimination of all kinds. I didn't want to be alone either. I, I didn't want to be someone who wasn't able to um, have a partner in life. And so I was kind of in this mode where I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm just going to count my blessings and, and uh, get married again. But I did come out to her mm -hmm. and, um, and then we moved, we had a, a few children. I'm, we moved down to Utah and I, I just reached this point where I just couldn't, I was, I was too depressed. Um, you know, I, I developed Crohn's from, I, I feel like it was, I developed Crohn's from just having too much stress on me all the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I was really sick from that. And I was always like wrestling with anxiety and social phobia and, and depression. And it was just, you know, life was, life just felt completely awful. And I just got to the point where, um, where maybe out of desperation, I just finally decided I just need to do it. I just need to transition. And, you know, as, as soon as I, as soon as I started taking hormones and, and kind of, you know, kind of starting the, the process, like I just kind of felt that whole cloud lift and it, it was, it was amazing. And I really haven't struggled with a lot of the negative emotions that I used to struggle with. Like things really feel like they're, they're right now. You feel like you're you. I, I do. I feel like, I feel like everything's in alignment. Like I can be like, I can wear my heart on my sleeve instead of covering it up. You know, that I can be honest with people. Um, I don't have to hide how I feel. I don't have to hide how I don't have to rethink my mannerisms or my, or my interests or, or any of that. It just, uh, all I have to do is just wake up in the morning and, and interface with people. So, um, where is your vision at this point? My vision, um, so around age 32, I'm 42 now, and around age 32, um, I had to, it had gotten bad enough to where I couldn't drive anymore, so I gave up drive, driving voluntarily. I just felt like... Was that hard? Like, I have heard people who have retinitis pigmentosa, and some of them like get in a car accident or there's, there's some huge wake up call for them that are like, okay, the driving is now off limits. Yeah. Was that, was that your story I, or was, I was it scared that was going to happen? So I, I lived it in Portland, Oregon at the time. And anyone who's been there knows that it has, it, it's a very pedestrian heavy city and there's, and it has very narrow streets and pedestrians there like rule the, rule the streets so um so i i would drive around and i and these you know these people would be like walking out from between cars and they just kind of expect you to stop and stuff you know and um and i wouldn't see them because they would walk they'd be walking out like right in one of those like little gaps in my vision mm. and so um and so i had a couple near misses there where where you know it was it was really scary i'm and I, and I kind of had to come to terms with the fact that if I kept driving that, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't be so lucky down the road. I would end up hitting someone, a bicyclist, a pedestrian, a child, you know, chasing their ball out into the, into the street. And I just couldn't live with that possibility. So, so I, 
you know, just voluntarily quit driving. Mm. And it was incredibly hard because, you know, um, yeah, as I anyone know. knows who doesn't <laughs> drive, you're, you're giving up this huge privilege. Um, and a lot of independence. A lot of independence. Yeah. And at, at the time, I lived in a good city for that. Portland is has an amazing um, public transit system. You can go pretty much anywhere. It's one of the best in the country. And it's also a small city. There's, it's not, it doesn't, it's not sprawled out, you know, and, and it's very walkable. Almost every part of the city is very walkable. Um, but right around that time, we, my, my wife and I moved to Corvallis, Oregon. And, um, and it was a, it was a nice little walkable city too. I could go anywhere I wanted, but, but the most frustrating thing to me was that there was no way to get out of the city. Like there was no way I'd always hiked and like, you know, explored. I was one of those people that just jump in a car and just go everywhere and anywhere. And all of a sudden I felt like I was kind of imprisoned in this, in this little town and there was no way to even, I had to depend on my wife to get me to the Amtrak station so I could go back to Portland to visit friends and stuff like that. And that was, that was really frustrating. Um, and just something, something I had to deal with, something I still deal with some, from time to time. I, I still get mad about that. Yeah, I think all of us who can't drive get mad about it sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I feel like there really should be alternatives to, to the automobile. And there, at this point we're in, in our history, there just isn't. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, so you, you had, you're kind of transitioning with your vision and you guys, you had moved down to Utah, your family eventually yeah, moved to. Yeah. Um, yeah, we moved down to Utah and I'm sorry, I did forget to, um, address the earlier question. So since, since age 32, when I stopped driving, things have gone downhill more. Um, um, I, I have cataracts. So my, and, and, and my visual field is, is right around 20 degrees. And so I don't have any peripheral vision anymore. And, and my acuity with the vision that I have is, is pretty poor. And so, um, and so that, that's kind of where I am. I consider myself, if, if you're going to make a, you know, distinction between visually impaired and blind, I would consider myself blind at this stage. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so we moved down to Salt Lake city and, um, Thankfully, they have a pretty decent transit system here, but um, you know there, there there wasn't a there. On the other hand, there wasn't a lot of family members around to kind of um, to kind of lean on for certain things. Right. And so it was just me and my wife down here. Um, I I was at the time I was like also struggling with the fact that my animation career was was over because I could no do, no longer do the kind of work that I, that I used to do. Um, I used to work on, on TV shows, on commercials, um, as an animator, um, I would do, I draw comic books and, and single panel cartoons and, and that sort of thing. Mm. And I made a good living at that. Um, you know, I worked on a, on a primetime TV show called the PJs and, um, and so that, that was very much like what my, my what my identity was and what my career had been. And, you know, suddenly, suddenly I just couldn't adapt 
I, I couldn't find the adaptions or adaptive technology or whatever you want to say um, to continue to do that job anymore um, because it, it was just purely visual. And so um, I was kind of wrestling with what to do next. And so, um, and, and earlier in life, I'd done half of a psychology degree. And so I, I finished out my psychology degree and I was thinking about going into the into social work so I could become an LCSW and be, be a therapist and that sort of thing. And I, I was canvassing for Obama around that time. And I heard this story from him about how he was going to go uh, get a MSW and become a, a social worker for similar, for similar reasons that I was interested in it, um, which is just helping people and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I decided to get a law degree instead because, um, you know, I feel like you can help more people with that in, in, in more important ways. And so, you know, I, that kind of inspired me to apply for law school and I, and I, and I ended up getting in and then I added an MSW to that in my second year of law school and got both degrees. Wow. And you, and you also transitioned during this time, right? Yeah, that's right. I transitioned in my second year of law school. Um, so it, what was that like? Well, first of all, you, I mean, how, how, how does that work? How does transitioning genders work? Well, um, the way it works is that you, um, you initially you see, if you're, if you're following the best practices, you see a therapist and you let them know that how you're feeling and that sort of thing. And um, they they kind of meet with you for for three months minimum um, before they approve any kind of hormone treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, when when they do feel like you're ready for that and that there's not and that and that your feelings aren't explained by something else, um, you know, some sort of life crisis or that sort of thing. Um, they le- they write a letter to to they write a letter of recommendation that that a doctor can then use to prescribe the hormones. And so there's those two gate, gatekeeping functions in place there. And then um, once you start the hormones, what, there's what a... What was it like? I mean, did you have to... Sorry, did, I just curious. Did you have to... I mean, sometimes you kind of have to shop around for therapists, I think, because not yeah, every therapist yeah. and every client are going to mesh. Yeah, there like, was there was a whole history with me where, um, where, you know, one when I... Back in the 90s, when I first got... A computer for the first time the very first thing that I did with the internet was to look up gender therapists you know because mm-hmm. <laughs> I had no idea how to find any of any of them um before then like it's not something where you just open the phone book and you're you're like you know um calling around and saying do you deal with transgender people you know and right it's a pretty specialized area and so I I found the in, in the mid nineties, I found the Ingersoll gender center in Seattle and, um, went down there once and like, you know, I was, I was really ashamed of the whole thing at that point. And I walked in there and, and, um, got one meeting with one counselor then, and then kind of just back, backed away from it. And then later on, when I lived in Portland, I started seeing someone on a regular basis, but really didn't really didn't connect with her. Um, I tried another therapist, didn't connect with them. And, you know, there was, it just seemed like things never really 
never really, um, the, the relationship was just never there. And I was never in a place at that time, at those times where I could kind of really dive in and explore the whole situation. But when I came to, uh, Salt Lake, I, I met a therapist, um, named Lee Beckstead. That's, that's amazing. And, uh, you know, I, and I, and I felt like I was finally in the right place and it was the right time. And, and so, um, and I, I found him, he was part of the, L, the LGBT therapist guild here in the city. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so yeah, he was just the right person. Um, you know, he, he really helped me explore how I, how I was feeling and what my options were and what the consequences could be. And, you know, really helped me puzzle out all of the, all of the things that had always stopped me from doing it in the past. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I'm not saying that he, in, in any way that he talked me into it. Um, it's, it's more the opposite. He, he showed me all of the angles all of the potential problems that I might face and then helped me figure out how I felt about those problems. Mm. So yeah, one, once I got through that and started, once I got through that kind of a, a couple, about, I, I think I did more like a five or six months of therapy with him. Mm -hmm. And I, and I found the local transgender support group at the pride center and started attending there. And, um, you know, just, you know, things started falling into place. And then once I started taking hormones, um, I remember it really distinctly. So I just started, um, this, uh, two credit contracts, contract writing class in, at, at the law school during that summer. And, um, I think it was mid May or so when I started and, uh, you know, I remember up until this point in my law school career, um, I had just this like terrible social phobia. Like whenever, whenever I was called on, I would just have this really harsh physiological sort of response to being called on and, and being, and, and being, and having all these people focus their attention on me. Um, to the point where I was like, I don't know if I can really be a lawyer, you know, because I, I I'd have to be in front of people and I don't know if I can deal with this. <laughs> and I just remember, um, I took this contracts class and, and I had just started hormones and, um, and I just noticed like all of that social phobia kind of melting away. That was the first thing that I noticed. Um, I, I, I remember during that two week period, the, the, you know, the professor would call on me to present something or, or, um, challenge me in some way in front of the class, the way that law professors do. And, um, I just did not that, that whole physiological response was just gone. It was like, and I, and you know, it was a real marvel to me because, um, because I'd really lived with that all my life up until this very week, you know, that I started hormones and, and the way that I kind of explained that is, is twofold, you know, one, one, I always felt like the hormones were just something that I needed on some level. And two, it was just the whole idea of letting go of this facade that I was trying to maintain. Um, I was always trying to maintain this facade of, of like masculinity and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and always 
wondering if people were seeing through it or or if they were you know i not really knowing how people were perceiving me not knowing if i was doing a good job of 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 presenting that facade and when you're that self-aware i think being in front of people um is is a lot more difficult because you're as a you know you're so hyper aware of everything that's going on in in your body and in your speech and in your body language and all of that sort of stuff and so i just was able to let go of that and just and just uh and just be me and and relax what do the hormones do physically like do um you... well they they you kind of go through like a second puberty um you know you're there's fat redistribution there's um if you if you've lost hair on your head sometimes there's some regrowth there mm-hmm. and there's um there your skin softens and um there's do you, do you grow breasts yeah there's second yeah yeah mm-hmm. for for a trans man it would be it'd be deep voice deepening beard chest hair for for a trans woman it would be breasts um you know some hip development um what does that feel like like is, is your body's going through all these changes what does that feel like just... well for for me it just felt um it felt very very natural it just felt like something that should have happened before and didn't mm-hmm. but so so in a way it just felt like emotionally almost... it felt like coming home you know mm-hmm. i was i was like you know finally i just finally things just feel right like feel finally um I, the person I see in the mirror kind of matches, matches the person that you are inside. was always looking out at the mirror. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was just this like really beautiful alignment. Every, every, every development was just really exciting and, and, um, and felt, and felt perfectly natural. It didn't, didn't, didn't really feel like there was a big adjustment to make. Um, you know, I, I imagine if the average man took estrogen by accident or something and had these kind of things <laughs> happen, that they would be very distressed. By them. <laughs> right. But, but that's the difference between, between the average man and a, and a transgender woman, you know? Yeah. Um, there's just, there's just something different about me and I'm not sure how to explain it exactly, but, um. But but that's part of it. So and, oh, go ahead. Oh, and and then a, about a year later, um, so I took the hormones, and then I came out to my friends and family, and I. So you started the hormones first, or did you come out yeah, first? Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of all designed. All these all these steps are designed. Um, there's a best practices. There's there's best best practices called the W Path standards, and they're designed to allow a person to explore all of this, but still be able to um, backtrack out of it if it's not right for them mm-hmm. without without the whole world, you know, necessarily knowing that, that they're trans or, or that they might have felt they were trans. Mm. So, it, you know, rather than just letting the cat out of the bag and then trying to put it back in, which is impossible, you know? Right, right. Um, you take these little baby steps out of the closet and in, into this, into this other life to see if it's if if it's uh, going to be okay for you, and so and so um, I started with hormones and, you know, if you, if for 
for whatever reason, like you're not you're not trans and and hormones aren't right for you, um, you'll know right away. Um, you know, yeah, a lot and of, you also don't have to let every person on you know in your world know. That yeah, if you yeah. Don't you don't sure, have that kind that of like of sense. flaky sort of you know you kind of come across as flaky or like you're having identity crisis or something otherwise. And mm-hmm. so, so yeah, I started those and, and that was an amazing experience for me. And then I started coming out to a few people and what was were, that like? They were very, they were very supportive and, um, oftentimes, oftentimes the people that knew me best would be like, you know, that makes sense. Mm. Just having known you your whole life, it just makes sense. Like, I, and, and so that was, you know, very, um, it, it reinforced kind of that, the, the, the feeling that I was doing the right thing. Um, if, if you're comfortable, talk about, um, what that was like with, you know, your family and your parents being, you know, conservative, but changing to support you. Well, by, by the time I was an adult, my, my family had kind of, kind of, wouldn't say that they're ultra liberal or anything, but they'd, they'd grown a lot more liberal in their attitudes about things. My, my dad had, had a, had operated an antique shop at this one point and had a, had a, he hired a gay, a gay clerk Mm -hmm. who later came out as, as trans and transitioned. And so my dad had some experience with trans people and, and transition. And then, um, my mom, we'd, we'd, when I was a kid, we lived in a small town in, in eastern Washington, but we, we'd moved over to Seattle when I was a little bit older, and my mom worked at a grocery store, and she, she'd encountered a lot of trans um, customers, you know, over, over time and gotten to know some people. And so neither of them were, were completely uh, in the dark or, or about, about trans people or or that sort of thing, like they were when I was a child. But, um, but still, you know, it was hard for me to come out to them because, um, were you scared? I was very scared because, you know, I just didn't know what to expect. That's the hardest thing about coming out of the closet is that you just don't know what to expect. Like Mm. you don't, you don't know if, if someone's going to throw their arms around you and give you a hug and say, you know, I still love you. And this is, this is, great or if they're going to say I hate you get out of the house you know what I mean you don't know and so it's really so it's a hard step to take and so I I remember I remember I wrote an email a very a very eloquent email that took me weeks to write um every word had some sort of meaning you know um and I'd gone over it over and over again and then I addressed it to all four of my family members, my dad, mom, and two sisters. And, and I was just, I remember I was just sitting at the computer at one o'clock in the morning on a Friday night with my finger, just like hovering over the send button, Mm. you know? And I, and I sat there for an hour before I could actually click the send button, just debating with myself. Like, is this what you want to do? Why did you, you, do? you you sent the email? I'm. <laughs> I did. What what made you what made you do that? Um, the the fact that I had. The fact that you know I knew this the struggle would never go away. Um, I knew that 
things would never, things would never get better. And, mm-hmm. um, I'd seen what, how the positive changes that I'd gone through and went on when I started taking hormones and, um, and how like so much of like the turmoil that I, that I'd felt was, was lifting. And, you know, in the end it was just, it was just, you know, I just forced my finger down onto the, onto the mouse and clicked that send button because, um, because I really didn't have an option B, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like I was going to go back in the closet again. Yeah. Um, I, I was an adult and, and I, and I felt, I felt like, you know, if I, if I had to lose my family ab- over the whole thing that then that's, then I just have to cross that bridge when I came to it. But I really, cause your mental health just, it was just too poor. I yeah. couldn't go back. Like, once, once I'd taken those baby steps out of the closet, mm-hmm. I, I just couldn't imagine going back in again. Like it was too, it was too dark and too confining in there. And so, yeah. So I, so I hit that send button, and probably about ten minutes later, my mom called on the phone. I, I chose Friday night at one o'clock in the morning because I wanted to give my family the weekend to deal with the whole thing before they had to go back to work. Mm-hmm. But my mom apparently was up at one thirty that uh, that evening and got the email and um, she called me about a half an hour later and I was actually too scared to answer the phone. Oh. Like, you know, I was like, oh, I can't deal with this yet, you know, and because I wasn't prepared to deal with it that night, you know, mm-hmm. I was like already in bed and kind of going to bed and winding down and I hear the phone ring. Well. So I, I let it go to voicemail and then, um, and then I waited for the little, you know, the message that says you have a voicemail to, to come on and I listened to it and her voice, you know, she said something to the effect of, you know, sweetie, um, I, I, I got your message and, um, I still love you, but I just don't really understand what's going on and I need to talk to you and, and her voice was just so heavy with emotion, you know, that it was really, really, really hard for me to, um, it was hard for me to call her back because, you know, I, it just sounded like she she was devastated, but, you know, I got up the nerve and when I called her back, um, she just answered in a normal, in her normal, like happy voice, you know, (laughs) just 10 minutes before her voice, she sounded devastated. And then when she, when I called her, she said, hello, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> just, and, and that really helped. Uh, like once I heard that she was okay, then I, then I was able to talk with her about everything. And I found out that she had, after she c- tried to call me, she called my sister and my sister happened to be driving back from some like late night, restaurant evening mm-hmm. and so she and my sister were talking talking about my letter um my sister was on the side of the highway she'd pulled over the car and read my letter on the side of the highway and you know there I, I found out all this was going on I I'd really hoped that everyone was just going to get up you know Saturday morning and have their breakfast and then 
oh, what's this letter? Right. You know? <laughs> I didn't expect all of this late night emergency like this, but, um, but my family was, was just automatically out of the gate supportive and mm. it was, and it was amazing. And, you know, once I had their support, then everything else was easy. Was there a grief process for them at all or it, or it just was it? There was, yeah. Um, especially my older sister, I think, mm-hmm. um, her and I were very, very close and she was, she was one, she was one put off by the fact that I had never told her earlier in life, mm-hmm. you know, that, and then when I did choose to tell, um, to, to come out to the family that I didn't at least give her a heads up before I approached the rest of my family. Mm-hmm. And, and if I could do it over again, I, I would do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was just, I was just kind of obsessed with wanting to be fair about who, who I told first and, yeah. and, you know, and, and I, and I was kind of prepared to lose, to lose everyone at that point. So it's hard to say where I was coming from, but, you know, so she was, she was a little bit angry about that. And there was, there was definitely a grieving process for her. She, um, you know, we, our, our relationship was a little cooler than it had been for, for, um, you know, and forever. Like I, I'd never, never, never had like kind of a cool spot in our relationship before, but that in the year after I, I, after I transitioned, um, it's almost like she had to kind of retreat for a while and kind of like, you know, kind of re reconsider our relationship and then come back. Um, does family like for people that are, you know, in family or, or friends or whatever, do they almost, does it feel, do they sort of get to know you in a different way? Does, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, yeah, my, my, um, with that sister, it seems, you know, she seems to be coming back, um, coming back and, and wanting to get to know me in, in a different light and mm-hmm. thinking of me as almost like a different person. Are um, you a different person? I'm not, not entirely. And in, in a lot of ways, yes. Um, I'm, I'm a lot more outgoing now. I'm a lot more happy. Um, I don't hide my opinions. I'm not trying to do you know, image control all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like I was a walking PR firm before, you know, just making sure that um, everyone thought of me as a man and thought of me as masculine and mm. like, you know, always kind of trying to manage my image and stuff. And now I just really put myself out there and I'm much more vulnerable, much more willing to say things that, that might that might hurt people or might p- make people laugh. You know, it, I just don't, I don't hold back as much. And so in a lot of ways, I'm a different person. And then I look and sound and, um, you know, and, and dress different and everything. Um, are you the same too? In what, in which way do you mean? I don't know. Like, for example, I am one of the least organized people that has ever Uh. walked the earth. And (laughs) and I I don't think anything will really change that about me. Do you you know what I'm saying? I mean, are there kind of characteristics about you that are just, they're just the same? Um, Yeah, there's most of, most of who I am is the same. Um, You know, I, I, 
liked to write before or I like like to write now. I like to play guitar before, I like to play guitar now. Um, I've always been kind of organized and stuff and that, that hasn't changed. So I would say that the vast majority of who I am is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but, then, but then the social stuff is so different that I can see how I would feel like a, an, an entirely different person to some people because I was so introverted before. Um, well, you found, you found you. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just that that's, what's been so liberating about this whole thing is that, um, is that, you know, I just don't, I don't, there's no, there's not as much of a stopper, you know, uh, there, there's, I, I don't know really how to explain it. It's just, it's just that before I was always like trying to, like I said, doing, doing image control and stuff like that. A lot of times, like, you know, and I, and all of this was internal all the time. And so, um, a lot of times, like I'd just be sitting there having a conversation with myself about whether or not I should say something Mm -hmm. to, you know, out loud, like whether or not that would be the right thing to do given the circumstances and blah, 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 blah. And, and, you know, from the inside, you know, I had a lot going on from the outside. I must've just looked like this weirdo just sitting in the corner, completely silent and not saying anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, 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 um, yeah. And so socially I'm just so different than I was and, and so much more healthy that, um, that, yeah, I must, must seem like a whole different person. My mom, my mom, I moved in with me in a couple of years back, she she had an accident uh, on the job and and I, you know, became disabled and um, and so she came down and and she's she's been helping me with my girls and stuff. Kind of helped me while I was in law school um, by taking helping helping take care of my children and and offering some other support and so. Um, you know, she's, she's really had to deal with me being this whole other person. And one of the things she says is that she's like, Susan, you never shut up now. Like you just <laughs> talk all the time. I'm not used to you talking like this. Mm. And, um, and then she, she also, she also says that I'm much happier. Um, she said, you know, you never used to smile. You just kind of, you just seemed like you were just absent, you know, just like the the that that you just weren't fully there all the time yeah and you know that was and that was true I was like very dissociated and and not fully fully there I was I was always kind of wrestling with that issue in every situation and so um so you you were it's gone you you were married right when I was married yeah and what was that what was what was that like? I think she did the best. So I'd come out to her before we. You're comfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no problem at all. Um, I'd come out to her before we got married and told her at some point I would probably need to transition. Unlike my first wife, where I said that I, I, I would never do it. Mm-hmm. Um, by by this time, I I said I would need to at some point. Mm. And so. Um, and so we got married, I think, I, when I when we got married, I think she 
you know, fully understood that I intended to transition. But then she rode, she rode through some of the, you know, I had that back and forth cycle where, where I be, I was brave enough to like start thinking about dealing with it. And then I'd back away from it and try to play it safe. Mm-hmm. And so she, she rode, she rode with me through that cycle a couple of times and, um, you know, saw me going to a therapist and a support group and then, and then backing away for a while. And, um, we, we married when, when we married, I was 28 and she was 21. So she was quite a bit younger than me. And, and, uh, I think as, as she got older and became more aware of what she wanted in life, um, you know, she just realized that, um, she, she really didn't want to want to be with a trans person. She didn't want to be in a relationship with another woman. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. I've thought about that because I, I mean, you know, I, I, um, I'm not a lesbian. So yeah, if my husband yeah. were to transition, I, I would hope, th- I don't know. I, I don't think I could, I mean, I, I just, I'm not attracted to women. So <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, be, I would really, be really hard. And I think, you know, at first maybe she was more open to it because, you know, she did, she did marry me. Um, mm-hmm. but I, but I think like when you're 21, you have a much different idea of what you want and what you can tolerate and what, and what, you know, works for you than when you're older. And, and, and so, um, you know, even though, even though I, I loved her to death and, and we had two kids together and, um, you know, and I, and I wish it, it could have worked out. Like I do respect the fact that she, um, you know, couldn't follow me down that path. Mm-hmm. So was that hard? It was, it was very hard because, um, in a way I, I felt like I was, I was, um, choosing between, you know, my, my very health and, and future mm-hmm. as, as a, as a human being. And, and then this, you know, I felt like either that was an option or staying married and, and keeping the family together was, was the other option. And I didn't know how, I didn't think I could do both because, um, how come, because how... I couldn't, I couldn't continue to live the way I was living. Like I, I, I knew if I'd kept going down that path, um, you know, as a married man and mm-hmm. father and, you know, with, with that severe gender dysphoria, I knew, I knew that I just wouldn't make it. I would, I would, um, you know, either, either get sick from, from in some way and, and, and just pass away naturally or, mm. or, you know, consider suicide and wow. stuff, you know, cause it was just, I, it was just, I just couldn't do it anymore. I just I couldn't think... tolerate in another day. I think that explanation is really beautiful because I think that's something that a lot of people wonder is like, look, you're married, you've got kids, just stay in your gender. Or if you're somebody who's gay or lesbian, just, you know, you, you made it work so far. So why can't you just keep it up? Yeah. And I think that's a really beautiful explanation as to why you can't just keep it up. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, sometimes you can't. Um, so it was a, it was a hard, it was a hard choice to make and, you know, I, I think, I think we'd been, the two of us had been growing apart because of 
the gender issue for some time prior to that. So, you know, when, when, when I took the hormones and, and things became real, um, mm -hmm. the, the relationship quickly fell apart and, um, I ended up moving out of the house and, and, you know, we switched into this, we switched over into this, um, you know, custody sharing relationship, um, where, where, you know, we, we kind of split our time with the children and we just kind of went our separate ways. What was it like to tell your kids? Um, it was, so my youngest daughter was one at the time, so mm -hmm. she's never known me as her father, mm -hmm. but my older daughter knew me as her father and, um, you know, but so, so when my, when my older daughter was born, um, we, we lived in Corvallis and, and I was a, I was a college student, um, you know, kind of finishing up my psychology degree there. And I was always home with my daughter. And then when we moved down to Utah, um, my, my, my ex, uh, decided to, that, that she, she needed to finish up her licensure for the career that she was building. And, um, and so I decided to stay home. I'd, I'd gotten onto SSDI by now. So we had some income coming in there mm -hmm. and I decided to stay home with my daughter. So I was home with her for two years before I, before I started law school and her full-time caregiver. And so, you know, for, for the first three years of her life, I was really there just every day, all the time. I was her primary caregiver. And so you know, she really loved and adored me as, as her father. Mm. And, um, and then, you know, even, even after I started law school, I spent a lot of time, I, I, instead of doing internships during the summer, like you're kind of supposed to, um, I would take the summers off and just spend them with my, with my daughter. And so, um, and so, you know, I, I, she was only five years old and I, and I remember we were at a bus stop waiting for the bus. I was taking her to school and, um, and that's usually we talk, we, we talk when we're like out walking and getting buses and things like that. And so, um, we had some time and I, I sat her down on my knee at the bus stop and I, and I told her, um, you know, that I, I really I really feel like a girl inside and that I'm going to change and that I, I still love her and all that, you know, all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And, you know, she didn't really, she didn't really fully grasp that concept, but she, she like, wasn't, wasn't at all worried about it. Hmm. She's kind of like, okay. Oh, wow. You know? So what, how did you feel when she's like, okay, were you, you know, I didn't know that I, 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 I was worried that she just wasn't really getting it, getting it mm -hmm. completely, but that's kind of how she's always been about it. She's not ever, she's not ever been in, in crisis about this whole thing. I've, I've I think the, about... the worst thing about it for her was the, about this whole situation situation for her was the divorce, mm. um, you know, about being separated from one or the other parent for half of the week mm -hmm. and um, you know, having to go back and forth and, and that sort of thing. But it wasn't, it really wasn't the fact that I transitioned. There was, there was a short time when she was in the first grade, when she came home crying and, 
you know, I, I asked her what was wrong and she said that she'd told some kids at school that her dad changed into a woman mm-hmm. and the kids told her it wasn't possible that, that, that what she was saying wasn't possible. Mm. And she was really mad about that and, um, and upset about it. And what, what seemed to upset her more than anything was just that, that the kids just didn't believe her mm. or, yeah. or, you know, it, it didn't, didn't seem to really be about the fact that I transitioned. It was more just about, um, her, her relationship with her friends. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I expect issues to come up here and there. Um, you know, I think sometimes she, she misses, she has mentioned once or twice too. And when, when we're playing on the ground, she's like, I'm, I miss, I miss when you were my dad. Mm-hmm. And I say, why is that? She goes, because you were strong enough to like throw me up into the, up into the air and catch me again and things like mm-hmm. that. And, you know, I have lost some strength and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's also because she's gotten older and she's heavier. <laughs> right, right, right. So sure. maybe she just misses being a young child in some ways too. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I've, I've thought about that. I, I think if my dad, um, you know, my dad and I are really close. He's retired and has been my, um, he has just, he's driven me just everywhere and been a huge, yeah, big help. And if he were to, uh, change genders I think it would be hard for me at first but then he still he'd still be the things that I love most about him his compassion and his generosity and and just who he is and the fact that I can say dad how do they make the tunnel that goes from New Jersey to New York and he has an answer yeah those yeah. would still be there <laughs> yeah definitely so definitely um I think that's how it's been for her too yeah yeah um, so as much as you're comfortable, you, you, did you have surgery? And I know that, you know, different people yeah. are comfortable or more, less comfortable talking about it. So whatever you, I I am, yeah, whatever you want to say about how that works for people or sure. any specifics. Um, I, I did decide to go, go through with that and I'm glad I did because it was important for me to feel like I'm in, in, in complete alignment. You know? How does that how, like I've had I've had two surgeries. One of them I had my appendix out, and even though you know these nice doctors had saved me from dying a very painful death, when I woke up from the appendicitis, I was like beyond cranky, yeah, and wasn't all that appreciative. <laughs> and then I had a C-section um, with our little girl, and I was just on cloud nine and so happy because it was um, we had we had struggled to have family and you know by the time Marie was born it was about a five-year journey for us from from trying and I'd had some repeat miscarriages and stuff so yeah with Marie I was like so thrilled and over the moon what was it like emotionally for you when you know you're kind of in the hospital and you've had this surgery and surgeries usually don't feel very good after surgery but yeah yeah how did that that feel well there was there was definitely pain Mm -hmm. for for sure but, um, but it was so, I was so happy about it. Like I was so, I felt like so liberated by the, by this, by the whole procedure, but you know, by, by the surgery, I felt very, I was just like really, really happy about everything. Mm-hmm. Everything was like, you know, felt 
felt right, felt like... Did you sort of feel like almost emotionally and physically kind of complete? Yeah, yeah, just everything just felt felt like, I for, for lack of a better word, normal. You know, I just felt, I felt, I felt like most people must feel as, just when they're born, you know, mm. just that, 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 um, I imagine that most people feel very comfortable in their bodies from birth. I mean, it's the only body that you've ever had. So, you know, so you, I think most people feel pretty comfortable in their bodies. And I, I guess I felt that feeling for wow. the first time, wow. you know? Yeah. And so, um, you know, everything was just, uh, everything was just, just a pleasant, the whole, the whole thing was very pleasant. The recovery was really fast. Um, you know, and like, I, I really don't remember a lot of pain involved. Um, yeah, you know, I think I, maybe because you were just so emotionally just just elated in such a in such a state of elation yeah i don't i yeah. really i don't think there was i don't remember much pain i i remember recovering very fast i think the doc i i did recover fast too because the doctors my doctor said you know like oh that usually usually takes a six months for you to get to that point mm-hmm. or you know it usually takes a year for that to happen and and it was just a couple months after surgery as I was I was meeting these milestones like very quickly you mm-hmm. know these recovery milestones sure and um and yeah it, it's like my body just really took to the change really 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 quickly and easily and 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 it never felt odd and I never felt regret you know and it's it's just been amazing I, I remember one time just kind of going back a little bit one time we were visiting about how um, you know people with disabilities and and tr- people who are transgender oftentimes with with you know if there's a divorce they really will struggle to retain custody of their kids. Yeah. And what would, yeah. I mean like what would you say to somebody who who thinks that you know that should be the case that it's it's going to be easier on the child if they're with you know the parent who isn't disabled or it's going to be easier on the kid if you know they don't have to be you know if they're not with a parent who's transgender and they don't have to try and figure all that out what would you i would say that um i'd say that they're focusing on those traits too much um you know because because uh you know every every person is just kind of a compilation of of different traits and um and the traits that matter when it comes to parenting are 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 love and support and nurturing and you know a healthy dose of patience and um the the and 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 the ability to um the ability to teach and and to see the big picture and appreciate the little picture and you know the these are traits that matter for a parent and um you know, a, a lot of times people, you know, I, they, they focus in on that. They focus in on somebody's sexuality or their gender identity or, or their, or their ability level. And they really forget the, to the exclusion of everything else. And they really forget what matters as a parent, 
And, um, and so I'd say, you know, uh, to those people, like, you know, don't, don't let your, don't let your, um, I don't know, your view of, uh, trans people or, or disabled people eclipse, um, what's actually important to the, to the parent child relationship. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, yeah, because like for me personally, no, I can't drive and no, I can't read a piece of paper, uh, you know, without some sort of um, magnifying device or, you know, I can't really catch a ball when it's thrown at me and that sort of thing. Um, I, I can't do some of those things, but, mm. but um, none of that matters to my kids. What matters to my kids is that I'm they're listening to them that I'm that I'm feeding them when they're hungry that that you know I'm comforting them that I'm giving them guidance when they an emotional support and that I'm providing this this uh comfortable home this like soft place for them to land at the end of the day yeah and so um and and then those other things the those other things I mentioned, like not being able to drive, those can be adapted away. Um, no, I can't drive, but but my my kids love riding the bus with me. Um, you know, I can throw their car seats into the back of an Uber and and do the exact same thing that a sighted sighted person person is doing. Um, I have no trouble getting them to school in the morning or picking them up in the afternoon from from their obligations mm-hmm. and. You know, as far as helping with homework and, and that sort of thing. Um, at the at the moment, I can use a CCTV to help my daughter with her homework. And um, in the future, when I'm no longer able to do that, she might not need my help. If she does, I can hire a tutor or whatever. So, Are you, are you afraid to lose your sight? Is that scary? Um, not anymore. Um, it, it was very scary when I was younger. When, when I was so invested in being an animator and, and the visual arts and when I didn't know what to expect. But now I, I've, I've been blind for a long time in, in some regard or another. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I just, it just doesn't matter to me anymore like it used to. Um, you, you've gotten, talk about, you've gotten involved with the blind community. Talk about how that's Yeah, that was, you. that was very powerful for me to... Um, so, so I came out as a trans person. We covered all that, but um, but there's there's also a time when I came out as a blind person. You know, um, I I you know once once I started when so so my first contact with uh, the blind community was really um, after I I I'd gone gone and gotten an eye checkup and and found out that you know my my eyes had taken a kind of a kind of a turn south you know and Mm -hmm. that that and and I I was kind of desperate I didn't know what to do I I felt like you know I need to prepare for this in some way Mm -hmm. and so I went to the commission of the blind and and in Oregon and uh, they provided me with some cane training and and a CCTV and some things like that that really that really helped improve my life and um and that was, that was when I really like had to sort of come out as a blind. I was always trying to pass as a sighted person, you know, and like in situations like in dark situations, mm-hmm. um, 
where I really couldn't see what was going on. And, but I was always, you know, trying to function like my sighted counterparts and, and always feeling embarrassed when I, when I failed to do so, you know, somebody would try be trying to shake my hand and I wouldn't see their hand right. and just be out there and, and it'd be awkward. Yes, I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, just all this like kind of silly stuff and, and the commission gave me, um, gave me a, 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 you know, full size like walking cane. And then they gave me this identity cane that I could use in certain situations as well. And, um, and I started carrying those and, and that was kind of a, that it, it was a, it was a very liberating process on the one hand, because like suddenly I had these tools that I could use that, like, I didn't have to, I didn't have to try and pass as a sighted person anymore. I could just, you know, have my disability out there on wear it on my sleeve and mm-hmm. people would know what was going on with, with me and, and, and on the one hand, and then I also had the tools I needed to actually like know where I was on the sidewalk in the dark, you know, <laughs> Right. you know, I, I just, it was, I found myself in a lot of dangerous situations, um, prior to using a cane because I, I really shouldn't have been out there navigating without one. It was, you know, I was taking, taking some real risks and stuff. And I did get into some like kind of scary situations and stuff. So having the cane was just like really liberating to me. And, but then on the other hand, you know, then, then, then people start treating you like a blind person too, because they, you have the cane and, and, and for whatever reason that freaks some people out. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes that's helpful, like telling you what the bus number is. And sometimes it's hard, like what does she like want to eat interview. and yeah, or a job interview <laughs> and you're like, Ooh, I'm yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you, and you, and you see that some people react to you as, as if, um, you know, it, I, I would just do these little experiments because I'm also really, I love psychology and sociology. Mm-hmm. So I do these little experiments. And, and in fact, my experiment in my psychology degree was, um, was about aversive disabledism, about whether or not people. So, so my my study was this. I, I was just one of those people that stand in the Memorial Union building, mm-hmm. um, with some sort of like silly survey, and I wanted to see if um, if I stood there with a white cane, um, would people would people be more likely to fill out the survey or less likely than if I stood there without a cane? And, uh, you know, at this point, at this point, I had enough vision to where, um, you know, as, as long as the light was, was right and that sort of thing, I, I could function without the cane. Mm-hmm. And so I, so I, for four, four days or so, I stood out there with the survey, like asking, asking people, do you want to fill out a survey? Do you want to fill out a survey? And then I did it four days with a cane and, and, you know, I wasn't really surprised to find that, um, that people were more likely to deal with me without the cane than they were with the cane because, because, um, you know, there, there's some sort of like, there's, there's this, there's kind of with a lot of people, there's this aversion to, 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 um, you know, talking with a disabled person they just don't maybe there's just this discomfort and they don't know how to kind of deal with themselves 
deal with it all the time. And so, um, yeah, there's a significant, there's a significant difference between the cane and, and with, you know, with the cane and without the cane. And so, you know, that, and I, and I just saw that in my day-to-day -day life, you know, like if I walked into a restaurant with the cane and I had, and I was with my, um, with my spouse, um, people would be more likely to talk to her about like seating us at a table, right. or, you know, that sort of thing. Oh yeah. And then it's, it's interesting because, you know, my husband uses a power chair, you know, so we're both disabled. <laughs> so and, they, they don't so they've got to, to deal to. with one of us, but they will deal with him. <laughs> Yeah. Over me. And I, I don't know. I, I've wondered if it's because I can't make eye contact. You know, I can look yeah. at you, but I can't look directly into your eyes. Either that or maybe society's just more comfortable with wheelchair users than blind people. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's hard to say, you know. They also and... hand him the Braille menu, which is a little, it's like, no, I need the Braille menu. So. Yeah, you can deal with me directly. I'm not, I'm, I'm here. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so... So it was really interesting, like, you know, getting this tool that I always needed, but then like automatically having this, I mean, the day that I pick it up, having people treat me in this whole different way, you know? So that, that was really interesting phenomenon. And so, um, you know, not the, not the end of the world, definitely something I can deal with, but, but still interesting and, and troubling in some ways. Like, I don't know, what are the, what are the similarities and differences between being blind and transgender? Um, think? I think, I think there's, uh, you know, with both statuses, I think there's, um, I think there's a general, I, I wouldn't say it's widespread or, or, you know, that sort of thing, but maybe it is, I don't know, but there's, there's this, uh, aversion to both, both groups of people, um, for different reasons, you know, um, I, as a blind person though, I, I don't see, I don't see, there's not as much of a negative reaction to blindness. It's more like a, a dismissive reaction. It's mm. like we're talking about, um, where, yeah. where people, where people tend not to want to deal with you not to want to interact with you. Um, but, but don't hate you, you know, there's not that like negative emotion, but with with tra with being trans though there there is this there is this thing that you have to worry about which is just um, people having a violent reaction to you um, people feeling that you are you know that your very status is the product of sin somehow like for, so there's that religious kind of reaction sometimes mm -hmm. or there's there's uh, there's men who have internalized homophobia um and and uh you know maybe maybe it's because they're wrestling with being attracted to you or something and, mm -hmm. and wrestling with the fact that you are genetically male and they're attracted to you but but there's there's certain people that just have a very like violent negative reaction to mm -hmm. trans people and so that that's different um how do you deal with it with it with both of them like what have you what well, have you found? I one interesting thing is that because I'm both, mm -hmm. um, I've gone, I've gone, I've gone so far out of the norm that like that 
that it that it's made me in some way like special in in some people's eyes you know because uh-huh. like um because I'm not just a trans person I'm not just a blind person I'm a blind transgender person and so right. like now I'm you know especially in like in liberal settings like like colleges or or in in a lot of the groups that I that I volunteer with um you know I'm seen as as like something unique and so in in some ways that that helps me mm-hmm. out. you know they're like oh we we get we get to have a transgender person on our board and she's also blind yeah like, score we got know? two we got two yeah, cards here yeah, brilliant like <laughs> checking two boxes off the like off the affirmative action yeah. list you know yeah. and so um and so amazingly that that kind of helps me out in some ways and it and it gives me a visibility too because um because there's not a lot of people like me out there. And so so is, people tend to remember me really well. Is and the gay community, is the GLBT community accepting of your disability? Like I, I have a really, um, a dear friend who's, who's gay. And um, we were, another blind friend and I were at his house and um, we were playing some music together and making some recordings. And he, we kind of were at a stopping point for a minute. He said, you guys can do anything but drive can't you and it was just this moment of elation for me because it's like yay we have somebody who gets it and I've (laughs) I've wondered if his being a minority himself even though it's a different one than mine yeah helps him have some compassion and and deeper understanding well there's I I mean not everybody's like that of course but there's there's ups and downs with that I I do I've always tended to feel more safe and understood in the in the queer community than than in the straight community mm-hmm. um even before i even before i transitioned um you know i had some gay friends and stuff and and i always just felt it felt pretty pretty safe and pr- pretty well understood because i think you... there is an effort in that community for the most part to um to be open-minded and accepting and open-minded accepting of people with disabilities as well people with people yeah people from other races people from other ethnicities and people with disabilities and you know there's this there's this like tendency within that community to accommodate all varieties of people and so that and so that's that's been really nice but then whether or not they achieve that that goal that's that's different and there's there's you know, controversy that, that happens. Um, there's, there's been groups of, um, disabled queer people that, that, um, that, you know, feel like they don't have a voice in the community or that they're marginalized. Mm. And, and, uh, you know, and I, and I can understand that too. Like, you know, for, for instance, um, a couple of years ago, there was a trans day of remembrance that was scheduled, it's something that the community does every November 20th. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it was planned, it was planned at a, at a venue way, way out in West Valley city and kind of late at night. And, uh, you know, there's, there's quite a few disabled people that complained that they could not get to the venue because it was just too remote. Right. too late at night and their only mode of transportation is is uh public transportation and you know that the the sighted people 
or the the able-bodied people who had planned the event, um, you know, they 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 saw the bus sign out in front of the venue, and they and they thought, you know, well that it looks like it's accessible and stuff, but right. they just didn't really understand like how UTA works because they're so used to being able to drive everywhere they want to go. Yeah, and after a certain point in the evening, UTA isn't around anymore. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> there's a. You know, you might be able to get to the event and then you can have stay, to stay the have night a sleepover. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, so there's so there's kind of a backlash there and there there's there's been controversies like that, but for the most part I feel pretty comfortable in the in the queer community as a as a blind person and I feel like people are, are willing to um, you know deal with my disability or overlook it or whatever I need them to do, you know? Yeah, yeah, because um, I think, you know, when you're a minority, you kind of, and, you know, being around other minorities, it seems like you can either really be accepting or sometimes people are like, you know, I care about my minority's rights but not your minority's rights. And I, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's interesting. But, you know, as far as how I deal with them, um, with being trans and being blind, um, I deal with it by just living my life. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't really, honestly, I don't really think about, think about it that much, you know? Um, once, once my gender identity was, was right and I felt, I felt freed in a lot of ways. And so now I just live my life. I just, I just, uh, I just say what I want and do what I want and, and how, how relate did you pick to people a name? the way I want. Um, I picked a name. I picked the name Susan because my my old name was Sean, and mm. it's similar. It's a similar length and similar letters and stuff like that. So I like that about it. Mm. But um, but I also liked Susan B. Anthony. Like I, I've always been a feminist, and and so that's that's where that name comes from. Was that kind of cool to pick your name? It was very cool. Yeah. It was very cool. Yeah, my, my, my mom, when she heard my choice, she's like, that's not the choice I would have made. Oh. And I'm like, um, that's okay. Well, there's, yeah, this is <laughs> one like of the advantages to, to changing your... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm glad I didn't... She, she didn't tell me a name. That would have been better, by the way. I think she's okay with it now. And then I took my grandmother's name as my middle name. Wait, so Susan Viola. Viola. Yeah. It suits you. I yeah. Like it. Yeah, I I love that name. And then, you know, being blind is similar to is is I take a similar approach to being blind that I do with being trans. I I just live my life. Like I I wanted to go to law school. I didn't really worry about whether or not I could go to law school blind, you know. Mm-hmm. I just went and I knew there was I trusted in my ability to um to figure out a way to make it work like one way or another whether it's adaptive technology or or whatever I needed I I just trusted that I would be able to figure it out we we get good at problem solving when yeah. we have disabilities if if you're going to be disabled if you're disabled and you're going to be successful you have to get really good at problem solving exactly yeah. yeah, and just just have faith in your ability to to solve those problems when they come up. Um, I think a lot of a lot of what hinders people is that they just don't have enough 
faith in themselves. They're just enough faith in their ability to adapt and change and, and roll with the punches and solve the problem as, a, as they come up. Like, yeah, you know, it, that's all it is. It's, uh, you know, you know, just just believing in your ability to deal with whatever comes your way. So I always I always ask this question at the end of my, my podcast, mm-hmm. and I guess I'm going to ask you too. What is transgender? And not like a not like a scientific term, but what is it to you? Um, to me, it's so. So I'll kind of start off with a little bit of the science thing because oh um, sure yeah answer any way you want but. yeah yeah no it yeah I I and I'm doing that because because I want to I want to give kind of a heads up to the whole community so for most of for most of the community it's just anyone who challenges gender norms mm-hmm. you know it's a kind of an umbrella term. Um, so it kind of covers all kinds of perspectives. So there, there's people who consider themselves genderqueer, um, which means like they're they're just challenging, uh, challenging gender in some way, whether or not whether it's just wearing a, you know, earrings that are usually associated with the other gender, or wearing an entire outfit that is, or taking a gender neutral name, or mm-hmm. you know, just challenging the whole idea of gender. And sometimes it's only a political view too. And uh, you know, there's there's people that consider themselves two spirit, where um, you know they they feel like they have they embody both masculine and feminine kind of traits, and they don't really worry so much about fitting one binary or one part one side of the binary or the other. And then there's uh, people like me that you know, or we would be labeled transsexual, which is somebody who. It does fit a bi- the binary expectations of one gender and then transitions to meet the g- binary expectations of the other gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think there's different motivations for, for all of these types of, of transgender people. Um, like I mentioned before, some might be political, some might, might be emotional. Um, for me personally, um, all, all I can really say it's science hasn't really figured out like what causes it yet. Mm-hmm. You know, all I can really say is from the moment I could first remember, um, from the, from some of my first memories, um, I felt like I wasn't the right, the right gender. Like I didn't, I felt like I had the wrong body, the wrong role. Um, and, and uh, you know, always, always from the very beginning wanted to uh, change that and, and knew that that would help me. And uh, so that, that's what it is for me. And, and, and in some ways, I almost think of it in, in, my, in my own case, just speaking purely for myself, I almost think of it as a form of like intersex where, you know, if there is such thing as a male masculine and masculinized or feminized brain that I was somehow born with a feminized brain instead of, and, and that it's easier to change the body to, to align with the brain than it is to change the brain at this point. Yeah. So that, that's kind of what it means to me personally. But again, I, I recognize and pay respect to the rest of the transgender community and that that's not exactly what it means for them and yeah and that there's a large variety of experiences within that community 
What is blindness to you? Um, it's really just, uh, just, uh, that's, that's a complicated question because, um, because, uh, you know, sight, I, I really see sight on a spectrum. I, one morning, one morning my mom was looking around for her glasses. She's severely, uh, nearsighted, you know, and she couldn't find her glasses anywhere in the house. And, uh, you know, and I, and I could easily see where they were, you know, I could see that they're on the kitchen counter. And, uh, and I, I just kind of marveled at that, like, because, because technically speaking, like she had less usable vision to, to, for that particular task than I did at mm-hmm. that moment. She just had, she had this like, but once she found her glasses and put them on, she had, you know, a 2020 vision or right, whatever. Right. And so, and so, um, and so really it's, and, and people don't consider, people wouldn't consider her blind because she has, because she has that adapt, that adaptation. And, and it's become such a, such a common ad, ad, adaptation now that we don't really think of it as one anymore, you know? In the same way that we think of a CCTV as an adaptation, or or you know Jaws on a computer, and so um, and so that's a really complicated question. I, I think I think just at its basic level, it's just it's just uh, having eyesight that is that is um, less usable or less sensitive than 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 the normal person's than the average person's eyesight. And, um, and eyesight that is for, for whatever reason, because we're where we are scientifically right now, it's just not, we're not able to, to offer adaptations that, that like bring that eyesight back up into the, um, into the average, um, the way that my mom can do with her glasses, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's what it means for me, um, mm-hmm. It's, I, I, did that even make sense? Yeah, but like, <laughs> is it something that, is it a pain? Is it something you're sad about? Is it? Oh, no, no, not, not nothing it... like that. Um, yeah, emotionally speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think maybe I, that's I a better way to, to ask the question. Yeah, yeah, sorry. No, I no, take, no, it's I'm, good. I'm an attorney, so I take this <laughs> so literally. No but, worries. But, um. Okay, from 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 that perspective, um, it's it's really not that big of a deal. Like it's um, it's a you know it can be a hassle and an inconvenience at times when 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 I really want to drive and can't. But mm-hmm. um, you know, but I also recognize that it's like this. It's been this like it's been this beautiful kind of motivating. Um, you know, it's been this beautiful, like kind of motivating, motivational force in my life. Um, you know, because in my family, no one's, no one's ever gone to college. Like I was the first person to graduate from high school on both, on, on my dad's side of the family and the first one to go to college on mm-hmm. both sides of the family. And I owe that in a large part to, um, me like trying to figure out how to prepare for, for being blind down the road. I, 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 um, 
you know, knew that I, I couldn't just hop in a taxi and make a few bucks, you know, and, or, you know, and I didn't want, I, I didn't know exactly what I could do. So I had to like, think about the types of jobs I could do and then like really go for them. And the, my initial thought was therapist because, you know, I could sit and have conversations and I knew that computers would allow me to do all the, um, to, to, um, take notes and like, be able to read those notes later mm -hmm. and so so blindness for me has been this really motivational thing it, it pushed me into college it pushed me through college um and and into graduate school and you know i i really owe my my joint degree to that i also owe when i when i thought that the world was going to end when i became blind um I, I did a lot of traveling around the world and that sort of thing to, to see things that I felt like I wouldn't be able to experience later, you mm. know? Mm. And so I was also, also the first person in my family to ever go to Europe, to go to Central America, to like, in a large part, I owe all of these amazing experiences to being blind, mm. you know? Oh. And so it's, and, and I, and I really do love my ability to problem, problem solve. I'm, I'm proud of that. And I owe that yeah. to being blind as well. So what, what is the, my last question, what is the most important lesson that you think you've learned on this journey that you would want to pass on to somebody else? Um, you know, just going back to that whole concept of just believing in yourself, you know, the, like just, just, just have faith in yourself, have faith in yourself in regard to, um, just, uh, just what you, what you can accomplish and have faith that, that life is always worth living no matter, no matter what the circumstances, you know, and that, I don't know, it sounds so Pollyanna, I guess, but like, you know, it, no. it really, I think there's a lot <laughs> to be said for it. <laughs> Yeah, just have faith in yourself. Don't, 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 uh, you know, don't, don't, don't limit yourself because, because you, you feel like you have, you have a disability or some sort of roadblock and, and, you know, don't let that stop you. Just, just, uh, figure out how to jump over it or, or sidestep it or dig under it or whatever you have to do, but, right. but just, just keep going and, and do what you want to do. Like, and life, life doesn't end until it ends, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, so don't let, don't let thing, don't let people, don't let people limit you. Don't, don't limit yourself. Sometimes you can be your own worst enemy. Don't, don't limit yourself. Just do whatever you want to do and, and have fun doing it. Awesome. Well, anything else that you'd like to add or, or that I should have covered? I, I think, I think I've talked long enough. Okay, so. <laughs> it's been so awesome to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Ability Stories. Please review this podcast in iTunes. To comment on this episode, please go to abilitystories.podbean.com. If you have any show ideas or would like to be a guest on Ability Stories, send an email to abilitystories at gmail.com. And thanks for listening.